0: Let's pray you have the words of eternal life where else shall we go father we are a simple people a lowly people Lord why on earth would you be mindful of us For generations upon generations upon generations, Lord, your faithfulness has continued and your church has been built, and the gates of hell have not prevailed against her. May this service and this sermon and these praises that we sing, Lord, be a notch in history of your continued faithfulness. And if you tarry long enough, Lord, may it be years and years to come. May the church of Abner Creek and other churches in our community still be doing this very thing as we wait for your son to come and to bring his church home. But Lord, we ask that the day would be quick as the days continue to grow evil, as we face things that frankly make us weary. Would you hasten the day, Lord, to... Have your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But we pray in, Lord, that you would exercise patience on behalf of those who do not know you, those whom the God of this world has blinded their eyes, Lord, we pray that you would shine the light of the gospel in their hearts so that they could see the glory of Christ and the joy of being in him. May that happen as we open this text further in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you haven't already, you'll want to turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to Genesis 31 to hear the final part of this narrative. There's a lot going on in the narrative. It's been choppy throughout the service, and I'm going to try to tie it all together. And so, if you're a little bit lost in what's happening in this narrative, just hang on. Hopefully, we can bring it together. I will say at this point, if, if you're watching online you should know that we've read the text that we're gonna be in today throughout the service this morning. And so I'm gonna be starting in a later part of the text. So you may want to pause the video and go read for yourself Genesis chapter 30, verse 25, through chapter 31, verse 35, because that's where I'm gonna be picking up in just a second. But for now, let's start where we left off, uh, Genesis chapter 31, looking at verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beast, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold of by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. And if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction, and the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all, you, all that you see is mine." But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they had born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate bread and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jahar-Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night into the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. A question to start our meditation on this passage this morning is this Do you know what it's like to have someone work on your behalf? What does it feel like to have someone work on your behalf? In many ways, it feels quite helpless, doesn't it? So I've watched not a few elderly people lie in bed with their families covering all of their needs. Real estate agents work hard for you to match the home that you desire for your family's needs. Jumping through hoops often when you say, no, this is not the one or this one is too big or that one is too small or the neighborhood is too busy or I don't like the carpet in this one. He says, okay, I'll go back to the drawing board and see what I can do. Attorneys represent their clients when the individual cannot defend themselves. When I think of someone working on my behalf, I think about my first speeding ticket in high school. I received the ticket when I was driving home from Collier's house after a date night. I was driving through Woodruff, and honestly, I don't know what was more embarrassing the ticket or having to tell the police officer, yes, I just finished a date night in this minivan. I stood in line a few days later to pay for the ticket, and when I was waiting in line, a police officer that I went to church with came, he pulled me out of the line, he took me around the corner, he took the ticket out of my hand, and said, "Go home." I felt so indebted to him i don 't even know if that was legal. <laughs> Having two older sisters, I can tell you stories of how each of them have stepped in on my behalf several times when I've done something just plain dumb or stupid, and they would take up for me or or Keep someone from calling the cops on me. True story, so ask me about that later. (laughs) This type of working on another behalf is the work we see in the text this morning. But it's so much more involved than an attorney, a real estate agent, a sister, or a police officer. See, a real estate agent only has so many connections. An attorney can only defend someone for so long. A police officer only has so many connections. The working on behalf of another that we see in the text this morning is not limited in any way because the person that's working on behalf of another is God working on behalf of his covenant child, Jacob. Now, if you've been in our series of Genesis uh, over the last few months, you should know this should surprise us that God would work on behalf of Jacob You remember Jacob? Jacob is the one who was from birth trying to underhand his twin brother. The one who cunningly took the birthright and the one who tricked his father and tricked his brother and deceitfully stole the family inheritance and the one who is on the run from his brother fearing for his life. This Jacob, the one who's known as a deceiver, why would God work on his behalf? The answer is certainly not because he deserved it. The answer is because God was faithful to his promise. Remember this Jacob is also the grandson of the great Abraham, right? The Abraham that God promised to make his name great, to make his descendants as the stars in the heavens, to make to give him a land, to give him a people. And God would be sure to To make sure that that the promise to Abraham would stay in the family line. And so Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, has the promise of God on his back and yet he's on the run from his father and on the run from his brother because of deceit that he has sown. You remember in chapter 28, Jacob is on the run in the wilderness. He finds a, a stone to lay his head on for a pillow. And in chapter 28, verse 15, we read this, Behold, this is, this is God promising to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done all that I promise you. This is simply amazing that God would give this type of promise to this type of person. It should leave us wondering, why? Well, the why is because God's plan has always been bigger than just one person. Through Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, God was forming a nation of people. A people that he would enter into covenant with, a people that would, he would form so that his glory and his grace would be seen by how he interacts with them. This is how the world should see the character and the ways of God, in part through his consistent and his faithful commitment to a particular people. This is the grand display of history, in fact, that that God would be graciously kind to a people who actually deserved his dreadful wrath instead. Why would he do that? Why would he favor the ungodly? It's the question that fills history. It's the answer that magnifies his grace. And I don't know how familiar you are to these things in Genesis, but for some of you, the, these things may feel really distant. Like, why does it matter to me about a God keeping a promise to a man thousands of years ago named Jacob in the line of Abraham? Like, why does that matter for me? Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, if you're a child of God, meaning through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are in the line of the covenant of Jacob. The commitment that God had to work on Jacob's behalf is the same commitment that he has to work on your behalf as a child of God. So think of it like this. If you're deathly sick, who do you want caring for you? The best of doctors. If you're going to school, who do you want teaching you? The best of professors. If you're wrongly accused of a crime, who do you want defending you? The best of of attorneys you can find. Brothers and sisters, here's how it hits home to each of us in our laps. Every day, if you're in Christ, you wake up with one working on your behalf with unlimited power, unerring wisdom, and unending love. Not because you deserve it, but because he's chosen to be in covenant with you. This, of course, means that ultimately, as a child of God, you're never outnumbered or disadvantaged. The God of Jacob that we read about in Genesis shines his favor on you every day. It's the big takeaway of this passage that this isn't a truth just for Jacob. Brothers and sisters, this truth should stabilize your whole reality every morning when you get out of bed, that through the trial and through anxiety and through loss that you may have through disappointments and through every circumstance of your life, this truth stabilizes everything that God is working on your behalf. It's the main takeaway from this huge narrative, God is working on your behalf if you're in Christ, a child of his. Now this narrative has obviously been long. You've read it through this morning. It would be easy to get lost in the weeds and all the details that we could go in. And instead of doing that, I want to show from a, a bird's eye view how God works on behalf of Jacob and the principle that translates to our lives how God works on behalf of his covenant children. Before I do that, I want to give a fast forward version in summary form of what actually happened in the narrative. If I were to put this narrative in the simplest outlines, I would say it would be like this. Here we see two men tricking each other and the two men bickering with each other while one God is working. Two men tricking each other, two men bickering with each other, one God working. This is what we see. Here's the synopsis if you lost your way through the reading, Jacob has worked for Laban for 14 years. He's paid for two bride prices in that day and time in order to get the bride. You'd give the father of the bride some type of, of payment for her. And so he's worked twice, seven years each for Leah, seven years more for Rachel. In that time, he's had 11 children. And after 14 years of service, he's ready to go home. The home that he ran from in deceit. But Laban wants him to stay. You see, Laban's wealth has increased dramatically over these years that Jacob's been with him. So Jacob, I mean, Laban says, Jacob, name your wages and you can stay with me. I'll give you whatever you want. Just stay. And Jacob, of course, thinks, I know how this guy negotiates deals. Remember when he wanted Rachel and he, and he tricked them and gave him Leah and said, well, now you have to work seven more years for Rachel? No, 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 I'll set the terms of the negotiation. So Jacob says, I'll stay and I'll name my wages. But here's the deal. I get all the striped, I get all the spotted, I get all the speckled livestock. I get all the black lambs as well. So you can have all the rest, but I get these, they'll be mine. And Laban agrees to it. But then Laban in his true form of deceit tricks Jacob. He sets him up. Laban has all his sons take away the speckled and the spotted, the striped of livestock. He he sends them away three days ahead. And so all that's left is the livestock that belongs to Laban. But while Laban is setting up Jacob, Jacob is setting up Laban. The two deceivers are like two kids and they're tying each other's shoelaces together. And neither one of them realizes it until they both stand up and they fall. Jacob has agreed to take the lesser of the livestock, the spotted, which would be the minority, but Jacob then takes matters into his own hands. He takes the flock and they're at the watering hole and he says, you know what, I'm going I'm to take these sticks, these sticks that are going to be exposed with white in them. I'm going to set them up kind of like a fence around the watering hole. So that when the flocks breed, then the livestock that was produced from them will be striped like these sticks. Now this is purely superstition. Kind of like a few chapters ago when Leah and Rachel were wrestling over uh, childbearing and they said, go get me the mandrakes because this will help me in bearing children. It's purely superstition. Jacob is practicing here what one commentator called junk science. And a few verses later, we're actually going to see the sticks actually had nothing to do with the outcome, but it was the Lord producing what was needed. However, the outcome actually worked in Jacob's favor. The flock produced speckled and spotted and striped offsprings. And this went on for six years. Jacob felt like he was really manipulating and taking advantage of Laban. And as a result, Jacob's wealth grew tremendously. You can see in verse 43 of chapter 30, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, donkeys. This Jacob is flooded with wealth. Well, Laban was the one who tried to trick him to begin with. How do you think he is going to receive this trickery? Well, the text tells us that his sons find out what's going on and they go after Jacob. And at this point in the narrative, God tells Jacob, it's time to go home. So Jacob gets his wives, Rachel and Leah. He gets all their possessions and they go on the run from Laban. Imagine the lifestyle of deceit. He runs from his hometown tricking his father and brother, fearing for his life and now he runs from the place where he found refuge with Raban and he's running back. Jacob is trapped between two enemies of deceit pursuing him. That's what deceit will get you in life. It will be successful maybe for a a short time, but before you know it, you'll try to get out this way and out this way, and before you turn around, every bridge is burned. This is where Jacob finds him. He's on the run. Where will he go? Laban has found him in his trickery, and so Jacob goes to his wives. He tells them, get your things, we're leaving tonight. And the text tells us that when they're leaving while Laban is off shearing sheep, Rachel, unknown to Jacob, goes in and she steals her father's idols. Now perhaps she did this because in sin she's trying to earn favor from these false gods, or perhaps she did this by trying to keep Laban from having favor from these false gods? Not, exact, not exactly sure. But Laban sees all that he's worshipped for years just disappearing, his, his daughters and his possessions and his gods, like water leaking through his cupped hands. Label, Laban sees it all disappearing and Laban goes after Jacob. Eventually, he catches up with him. I'm going in lightning speed here. He catches up to him. There's this tense moment where he's going through all the possessions to see where's my idols and he doesn't find them. He, he gets to Rachel and she's sitting on the idol. She says, Father, I can't stand up. I'm of the way of women right now. He doesn't find the idols anywhere. And Jacob, of course, lashes out in anger. And it ends where we think they're about to have this like WWE wrestling match. It ends anticlimactically because they reluctantly create a covenant together. And they say, "We'll go in peace. Don't cross each other's lines. This is... The big narrative that we're focusing on, and it leaves us with Jacob is now headed home. It's been 20 years, 20 years since he's been on the run, empty handed. In many ways, this feels like the story of Moses, if you're familiar with the Bible. It feels like Moses, does it not? Both of them came from wealthy families. Both of them committed sins that have caused them to run to the wilderness to avoid punishment. Both of them spend years in detoured hidden service, but both of them eventually head home with a destined plan of God on their backs. See, on the front end of this narrative, you see two men tricking each other. Who's gonna get the upper hand in the livestock battle? On the back end of the narrative, you see the two men bickering. Jacob's on the run, Laban's pursuing in this high-speed camel chase. They argue about idols. They reluctantly divide. They're bickering, they're tricking, and right in the middle, you see God working. And I put the question before you again, why in the world would God work on behalf of someone like this? After Jacob finds out that he's lost favor with Laban, Jacob goes to Rachel, Leah, he tells them it's time to go. And if you look at verses verses 4 through 16 of chapter 31, when Jacob is telling his wives the plan of leaving, you'll see God is referenced seven times. While the two men are tussling with one another, verses 4 to 16 emphasizes that God was working in these moments. And don't miss the fact that it's just one God working. I say two men fighting, two men bickering, one God working. It's only one God. Only Yahweh is at work on behalf of Jacob. In fact, where do we see Laban's gods? Do you remember? They're in the esteemed position lying in secret under the lap of a woman disguised by her menstrual cycle. There's meant to be irony there. The puny gods of Laban are hiding in disgrace. And God of Jacob is working. Right in the middle of the story, if you look in those verses four through 16, seven times God is referenced. Verse four, God of my father has been with me Verse seven, but God did not permit him to harm me. Verse nine, God has taken away Laban's livestock and given them to me. Verse 11, the angel of God appears to Jacob in a dream. I have seen what Laban is doing. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel as he commands Jacob to go. Verse 16, Rachel and Leah, God has given us wealth. And verse 16 as well, the wife says, whatever God has said to you, do wives just real quick that's the best advice you could ever tell your husband whatever God has said do and right in the middle of this narrative the text is so clear to highlight God's work though Jacob doesn't deserve it and though we don't deserve it we see God work on behalf of his covenant children this is seen all throughout this text I just want to highlight two ways that we see God working on behalf of his covenant children Number one, the Lord gives grace to his people. The Lord gives grace to his people. What tipped off Jacob that he needed to go home? Like Laban is coming, he's pursuing you. What tipped off Jacob? Well, it wasn't a what, it was a who. If you look at chapter 31 verse 2, And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob didn't deserve this. He tricked his brother, tricked his dad, tricked Laban. He's a con artist. And yet, God gives him grace to warn him of Laban's coming. It's not the only grace God gave. 20 years before, what did Jacob have? Only the shirt on his back, the sandals on his feet. You remember his original vow to God in chapter 28 verse 20. This is what Jacob said, then Jacob made a vow saying, if this was 20 years prior, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go I'll, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Jacob was so desperate. When he showed up 20 years before, he says, look, God, if you'll just give me something to eat, if you'll just provide clothing, if you'll just somehow let me go home one day, then you'll be my God. He didn't have anything 20 years ago. And now, 20 years later, he's headed home with his choice wife, all the possessions that he could want, and the promise from Yahweh to be with him. Jacob doesn't deserve this. But it's what he gets. And friends, that is grace. Getting what you don't deserve This is how God works on behalf of his covenant children. It starts by God extending grace to you. So think back over your life. What would you get from God if he gave you ultimately what you deserved? That's a scary thought. How many people live under the burden of the the constant scowl of God? Like shape up and do right and stop doing that and get your act together and do this and don't do that and I guess you've been pretty good but you could have been better. How many people live with the burden of God expecting them to meet a standard they feel completely unable to meet? How many of you have felt the burden of God to meet a standard that you feel completely incompetent to meet? Many of us are going to walk in Thursday to a wonderful Thanksgiving meal. And you know what's going to hit you in the face when you walk through the door? It's going to be the aroma of a home-cooked meal for many. It's going to smell so good. It's just, man, that it just feels right. It smells so good. It's like when spring comes again, right? And you're walking through your garden perhaps for the first time and you're seeing everything starting to bud and you can smell the spring in the air. Maybe when you get rid of this cold season, right? And summer hits and you hit the beach for the first time and that, that salt smells in the air from the ocean and you, you just, you breathe it in and, it, and it's lifting, it feels refreshing. Friends, this is the effect the gospel is meant to have. The gospel is not meant to come to us with the smell of a stench. The gospel is supposed to come to us and we're supposed to say, man, that smells good. That is a breath of fresh air. Whereas this man is supposed to come and it's supposed to be delightful. The gospel comes not as a burden. It comes as liberation. Friend, do you know that God doesn't give you his favor by you earning it? You don't get on God's good side by keeping the rules. God doesn't determine to love you based on how good you are. The gospel is not, if you're good enough, God will accept you. The gospel is, God accepts you even though you're not. And let me be clear, this does not mean the gospel is, Jesus accepts you by ignoring your sin. Uh, it's, It's way better than that. There's no good news in I hope the judge doesn't see my sin today. I hope he just gets lost in all of his paperwork and he fails to remember and he just kind of ignores it. That's not good news. The good news is Jesus accepts you by taking your place, by taking your penalty for your sin, by standing in your position, by doing what God has always done, working on behalf of his people. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Believes what? That if I'm good enough, I'll be saved, or if I keep the rules, or if I just obey God a little more, if I'm better than my neighbor. No, 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 no. I am unashamed, like Paul, to tell you this morning that God does not save those who are good enough, God does not save those who keep the rules. God saves those who believe Jesus has paid for their sin and now they stand innocent before God. That is good news. Do you believe that? Do you find yourself constantly trying to measure up to earn favor with God or do you rest in what Jesus has done in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection. See, the gospel is not about getting what you deserve. The gospel is about God withholding what you deserve, namely wrath for your sin and giving you what you don't deserve, adoption into his family, fellowship with him in the eternal riches of his kingdom because he's worked on your behalf through Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a call to do. It's a message of good news for what's been done. If you're here this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Jesus does not look you in the face and say, shape up. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and trust me. Come to me and cast all your anxiety upon me. Come to me and put all of your hope and all of your life and all of your dependence on me, and I'll give you life to the full. It doesn't mean it doesn't come with a cost. It took Jesus to the cross where he died and where he tells his followers, take up your cross, not to live for yourself, but to live for me. But it's a life worth lived, a life lived in the full. God works on behalf of his people. Why did God work on behalf of Jacob? Because God had a covenant to him Why does God work on behalf of any of you in Christ? Because God is a covenant to you. Second, and this will be more short. God works on behalf by giving grace to his people. Second, God works on behalf of his people by protecting them. When Jacob tells his wives his plans to leave, look at what he tells them in verse 6. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Now, notice this. But God did not permit him to harm me. Verse 12, the angel of God appears to Jacob. He says, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. You can see God's hand of protection all over Jacob, even in verse 24 later in the chapter. Laban's pursuing Jacob. The Lord appears to Laban. He says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. He's protecting Jacob from harm as Laban cheats him. As Laban twists things in his favor, God's interceding for Jacob by confronting Laban. You know, sometimes it's easy in our circumstances to think, you know, I I always get the short end of the stick Right? Nothing goes my way. Get cheated or treated unfairly. You know, It's, it's easy when, when, when we experience some sort of injustice to think I've been treated unfairly and no one will ever care. No one will ever see. And how many times has God rescued us by going before us and avoiding some disaster for us? I can't help but imagine Jacob's demeanor over 14 years. Can you imagine serving someone for 14 years, the whole time they tricked you and twisted things on you? He told me he'd give me Rachel, but then he gave me Leah. Now I'm working for Rachel. He told me he would give me his flock, but now he took mine away. I've grown his wealth for him, and now he keeps taking advantage of me. How comforting it must have been to hear from God, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Whatever injustice, whatever unfair treatment, whatever thing that is hitting your life right now where you think no one sees, no one cares, as a child of God, this is a promise for us. I have seen. I have seen. This is the Lord's promise. I have seen. I mean, certainly injustices fill our lives. When you put sinners among sinners in a globe, someone's not gonna be treated fairly. Maybe you know of such injustice in your workplace, maybe you feel it in your family, maybe someone's treated you unfairly because of some condition you have, maybe someone has mistreated you because of something they don't like about you. Christians who know the truth, have the truth, should be the first to fight for justice where we can. When there's genuine injustice, Christians should be the first to speak up against it. However, the church needs this hope to hold on to, that our ultimate hope for justice isn't in our voice being heard or our petitions being seen or even courts getting things right. For the Christian, the ultimate hope for justice is that we believe that God will see and God will act in his providential timing. God says in verse 12, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. That's what I would ask you this morning. Christian, do you believe that God sees every circumstance of your life? Do you believe he's working for your good? As Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the language of God working on your behalf. It doesn't mean that He's always going to work when you want him to, how you want him to. doesn't mean it's going to be in your timing, but it does mean that no matter what you're facing, God is working, even when you can't see, for your good in Christ. His protecting hand is upon you, even when people are mistreating you. Remember what Abraham intercedes for Sodom in Genesis 18:25? He says, "Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just?" Christians can persevere through injustice because our ultimate hope doesn't rest in my ability to set things right when I want to, but in God's ability to keep his promise and to always do what is right. There's no place a covenant child can go outside the protecting hand of God. So take this comfort this week into whatever you're facing, whatever your week has ahead of you, God is already there arranging the details, working on your behalf. If he's ultimately done this for you in Christ and secured your eternity, will he not secure what's in front of you this week? The two men are fighting and bickering and God has been working. It's a strange narrative with lots of twists and turns in it and truly this narrative deserves in-depth Bible study on each scene But here where we see the end of this text come is that 20 years later, a son is coming home. God is bringing him home. And he's not just fleeing his problems with Laban, he's got problems awaiting him, so he thinks. Remember, Esau wanted to kill him the last time he saw him. How will Esau receive him? Will the covenant still hold in place? What will come for his family? And yet, in all of this, God's already working behind the scenes, through relationships, through children being born, through circumstances, constantly working on God's, on Jacob's behalf. I'll close with this. When when you don't deserve something, and yet someone works on your behalf anyway, don't you feel indebted to that person? Your unworthiness, when you receive something that you don't deserve, your unworthiness is not what's highlighted. The person's kindness and generosity and grace toward you is what's highlighted. No one ever says, well, that person didn't deserve it. No, they say, man, how generous that person was. See, God works on behalf of sinners, not because we deserve it, but ultimately so that his glory is praised. When God gives you what you don't deserve, you're left with praising his goodness towards you. And so we're left with whatever circumstance you're in right now, you ask that question, will you praise him for working on your behalf? Let's pray. Father, where would we be without you working for us? We are so indebted to your mercy and grace. And yet we dare not try to pay you back as though your grace is not a gift. I pray, God, that you would help any in this room this morning who have been blinded to the gospel to receive your grace as a gift. I pray that believers in this room will walk out of the doors with an unshakable reality set in their hearts that the God of Jacob is the God who works on my behalf. Give us these unshakable truths God and help us to praise you out of your goodness to us in Christ's name. Amen.